Gather ye rosebuds while ye may, old time is still a-flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. Thank you, Mr. Pitts. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. The Latin term for that sentiment is carpe diem. Seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Why does the writer use these lines? Because he's in a hurry. No. Ding. Thank you for playing anyway. Because we are food for worms, lads. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. And I'd like you to step forward over here and peruse some of the faces from the past. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that movie, Dead Poet Society or not, uh, but it's one of those movies that is epic because it moves you, right? It stirs you. Uh, the movie ends and, and you don't say anything for a while because it, it's just so powerful. And, and one of the reasons that it's so powerful is because of scenes like this. Um, He's, he's talking, he's a teacher, Robin Williams is his teacher, he's talking to these high school students. And, and high schoolers, they think about a lot of things, but death is not one of them, right? That, that is rare that, that a high school student would think, man, I'm probably going to die soon, or I'm going to die one day. That's just not the way that we think when we're young. When we're young, we, we consider tomorrow uh, is, is, is an obvious, it's a given. Next year, we take that for granted. We, we make these plans that we're obviously going to be alive in 10 years, 15 years, 30 years. We don't, we don't think about our mortality. But at some point in our lives, every single one of us is confronted with this. We all realize that we have an expiration date, right? That our lifespan is limited, that we won't go on living forever. And at that point, when we realize that, we all react differently. We have different reactions. Some of us get scared and worried, and so we get rid of anything that might possibly kill us. You know, we board ourselves up in our house, don't do, do anything dangerous. We eat only healthy foods, get rid of all those carcinogens, you know, drink a lot of green tea or whatever it might be. A lot of people have the opposite reaction. They get this bucket list of a ton of different dangerous things like jumping out of a plane, uh, climbing Mount Everest, swimming with sharks, these adventures that they want to accomplish. Uh, many people, as, as we get older, we start to think about our legacy. When we die, what's going to be left behind? Will anyone remember us? Will it even matter that we lived at all? Are we going to leave anything for our kids? And, and Robin Williams, I think, or this movie, it does a great job of just pointing out the fact that, okay, we have a limited time on this earth, so make the most of it. Make it count. Make your life extraordinary. But I think the question that confronts us, especially as believers, is what does that mean? What does it mean as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, to seize the day? 
What does it mean to make your life extraordinary as a follower of Jesus? And I love uh, that Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he confronts this, and and he shows us so beautifully what that is. Uh, If you've been with us for any stretch of time, you know that we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, You know uh, that that that's a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he planted. He planted this church in Corinth, and the city of Corinth was a unique city. It was a city not unlike modern-day Las Vegas, a city that was all about yourself and pleasure-seeking and doing whatever you can to fill whatever urge you have at the moment, at the time. It was a city of great hope for some people. A status was everything. Honor was everything. And this was a place where you could come and you could gain wealth. You could make a name for yourself and you could change your status, which was huge. It was a very interesting city where Paul comes into and plants this church. It was a very pagan city. They were worshiping a ton of different gods. Like Their lives revolved around the worship of these idols, of these different gods and these temples. And Paul comes in and he plants a church. And for a year and a half, he lives with these people. He disciples these people. He raises up and trains up elders and deacons so that this church can continue to function once he is gone. He leaves... And a couple years later, he begins hearing reports about this church. Uh, Things aren't going well. Things are going poorly. They're not representing Christ well. There's a ton of divisions going on, whether that was over spiritual gifts or what teacher they preferred to listen to uh, or or whatever that was. You know, there was lawsuits or, or socioeconomic status. There were a ton of things they were dividing over. And then they had some questions. Paul, what do we do about meat sacrificed to idols? Paul, how do we do the Lord's Supper right? And he's answering a number of these questions in this letter. But I love the way that he frames it. If you remember, at the very beginning, in the midst of all the craziness that's going on, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with the gospel. In fact, in chapter 2, he reminds them that when I came to you, I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all that I knew among you in that time. And this was Paul, likely the greatest theologian to ever live. Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because that's what is of first importance. And we looked at that last week. He kind of bookends this letter with the gospel. Chapter 15, he says, I want to remind you of what is of first importance. That Jesus died and that Jesus raised from the dead. And now he begins to uh, jump into a, a, a second problem that they were facing with the gospel. Last week, it was more the fact that we look at the gospel and the gospel is kind of a past thing, that Jesus died in the past. He took care of my sins in the past. In the past, he justified me and made me right with God. But then Paul said, hey, the gospel is good even right now because you are currently standing in the gospel. In fact, it is by what you are being saved currently. You're being sanctified by the gospel. And now what he wants to do is he wants to look forward to the future. It's not just in the present. It's not just that you were justified in the past and then it's saving you now, but you have a future hope. So why don't you grab your Bibles? Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you grab one of the Bibles on the way in, one of the blue and white ones, it's on page 664. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. On the heels of Paul talking about the gospel, preaching the gospel, reminding them of the gospel, he says this. Now... If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which is what he just talked about, he just said, hey, Jesus Christ raised from the grave, I saw him, 500 other people saw him, they're still alive, you can go ask them if you want, he raised from the dead, okay? He says, if 
Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? There were a number of people in this church that were ascribing to uh, Epicurean philosophy. There may have been some Jewish people that were kind of influenced by what the Sadducees believed, that there is no resurrection from the dead. That that all there is is this life. You, You live 10, 15, 30, 60, 100 years, and then that's it. Once you close your eyes for the last time, there's nothing else left. And they believed this, even though they were Christians, because, you know, I mean, it makes sense. I think a lot of times we can, we can judge these people and say, they're idiots, they're crazy. But you have to remember, I mean, they grew up in this culture. Like, this was all they knew, all they ate, slept, and breathed for so long in their life. And now Paul gives them this radically different philosophy, this radically different theology. But a number of them were believing this as Christians. And Paul says, wait a second. There's a problem with that belief because it's incongruent with the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And he he continues to, to tease out the problem. Verse 13, he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Then if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. There's an epic problem, Corinthians, if there is no resurrection from the dead. That means that Jesus wasn't raised. That means that we apostles are liars, and not just liars, but we're misrepresenting God, which is not something that I ever want to do. And on top of that, your faith is in vain, because you're still in your sins. If Jesus didn't die and raise from the grave, then there is no justification between you and God. You are still enemies of God. You are still enemies of the creator and sustainer of the universe, and you have an epic problem if that's the case. He says, then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So not only is your faith in vain, but all those people that you know, that you love, that are believers, that that are part of, of the family of God, it's over for them. You will never meet them again. If your last conversation with them was an argument, too bad. If you never got to say goodbye, too bad. There's nothing else left if the dead are not raised. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's why he says that. If you look down at verse 32, he says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? By the way, we're not exactly sure what this means. It's okay, there's some things in here that we're not exactly sure what it means. It could either be that Paul physically fought with animals in Ephesus. It could be that there was a spiritual battle going on that he's talking about here. It could be that he's talking about the persecutions that he faced for the gospel. But whatever it is, he's talking about that for the cause of Christ, there was some sort of battle, there was some sort of fight that I experienced. And he's saying, hey, if, if the dead are not raised, if Christ wasn't raised, if, if this is the case, then why am I suffering so much for the gospel? What's the point? He says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's quoting a, a quote from Isaiah 
when the, when the people of God uh, were, were rebelling against God and they were going to be destroyed, and they said, well, just forget it. Let's just have fun. Let's just seek after pleasure. This was also an Epicurean philosophy. So he's kind of killing two birds with one stone uh, because back then they didn't have guns, so they killed them with stones. And so he's saying, if, if, if the dead are not raised, let's just seek out whatever pleasure there is. Now, Paul would agree with Solomon, saying that all the pleasures of this world are fleeting. None of them will satisfy. It doesn't matter if it's wealth or fame or power or sex. Whatever it is, it's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to fill you. But Paul's saying, hey, at least there's these fleeting pleasures, and we Christians are denying ourselves these fleeting pleasures. If there is no resurrection from the grave and we're still in our sins and our faith is futile, why aren't we even experiencing those? Let's just eat and drink and do whatever we can for tomorrow we die. Why do we suffer? Why do we die to our rights, our needs, our wants, and our urges for the good of someone else if, we're, if there is no resurrection from the dead? If our faith is futile, what's the point? Be about number one, get while the getting is good. That's what he's saying. Get what you can, and if someone else can have something too, great. But don't worry about them, because it doesn't matter if Christianity is dead. There's no point. You hear what he's saying? Did you hear this case that he's making against this? Can you imagine if that was the case? If Jesus had not been raised from the grave, what are we doing here? Why are you here? Why did you wake up early on a Sunday? This is the weekend for you. Sleep in. What are you singing about? That's dumb. Why are you raising your hands? Why? If the dead are not raised, if Christ has not been raised, then all this is worthless. That's why I love this next verse, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Last week he proved it. Not only was it, was it uh, prophesied, but he said, I can prove it. I've got 500 buddies that are willing to die, they're willing to suffer and not uh, recant their faith that Jesus did rise from the grave because he did. And because his resurrection, the appearing of him to these people was so impactful, was so revolutionary to their lives that everything changed. Think about Paul. Paul was persecuting the church. He was trying to stop the cause of Christ and then all of a sudden now he's suffering, he's being beaten, he's being whipped, he's being tortured for the cause of Christ. It radically changed everything. Jesus Christ has in fact raised from the grave. He says, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. He's comparing and contrasting Adam versus Jesus. Yeah, through Adam, through, through the sin of Adam, we are all tasting sin. We are all tasting death. But through Jesus, he says, for in Adam all die. So also in Christ all shall be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Not only has Jesus raised from the grave, but you who are in Christ, who are followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus, members of the family of God, you will be raised in him as well. He is the first fruits, and you will follow in turn. There is great hope beyond this life. It's not in this life only. It's not in this life only. And yet, these Corinthians, um, and I see why, they put their hope in this life. They put their hope in the human body. If you think about uh, the Greek world, the Hellenistic world, 
in which they lived in, they worshiped the human body. I mean, this is when all these great statues, and they had all these great statues of the human body. They had all these games, the, the Olympic games uh, and the Ismithian games, which I can't even say still. Um, they, they would celebrate just the, the achievement of the human body, the art form of the human body. And Paul's like, okay, you, you want to celebrate the human body? Let me just tell you about what's going on here. Verse 42, he said, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And he's comparing it to, to a seed, a seed that has to be buried and, and it has to die and then it becomes this great beautiful tree, right? He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. It will die. It won't last. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. I tell you what, in our society, we have begun to worship the human body as well. And the human body is like this specimen that we worship and that we hang on to and we cling to and the youth and the power of the human body. But I tell you what, I, uh, I just had to... Um, get a gym membership because we moved and and in my old housing development we had a gym that we could use and so when I got this gym membership I had to take a I had to have like an evaluation with a personal trainer and I thought dude I got this in the bag I've been working out fairly consistently for about four years so I'm, I'm good to go and I tell you what that hour I spent with him I've never felt so stupid in my life he was making me do all kind of crazy poses and weird things, and I felt like a pretzel. It was strange. I couldn't do any of them. I, I thought, wow, I, I'm, I'm not in shape. I, I, I have no idea what I'm talking about. And then he starts asking me about uh, my health and do I have any problems or issues. And I'm like, no, I'm fine. And I thought, oh, well, no, I've, I've been, I haven't iced my elbow recently because uh, I've got this, um, I guess, preacher's elbow. I don't have tennis elbow because I don't play tennis. <laughs> Or golf, I don't know what it is, this preacher's elbow. And, and, uh, and then I was like, oh yeah, and my knee over here, I was like, I injured it a couple years back and it's, it's still, you know, you know, still p- is in pain at t- from time to time. Oh yeah, my back. Every morning I've got to really stretch out my back really good. Uh, and then I've got this, uh, this, in my neck right here, I've got this pinched nerve. And I thought, I, my body is going to waste. This is terrible. I, I, and, and I think my dad said it best. My mom told me about, uh, my dad said, that, said this recently. He was talking about aging. He said, you know, I started out as Tigger, and then I became Pooh, and now I'm Eeyore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for laughing at my dad's aging. That's, that's, I'm going to have her a no back next week. Um, but, but I tell you what, I mean, it's, isn't that a great picture of it? At first, when you're young, you have lots of energy and you're excited. You can jump around. You do all kinds of things. And then you're Winnie the Pooh and just kind of content to eat honey. And then you're Eeyore and everything's awful. It's, the day is bad and it's dark and it's gloomy and it's probably going to rain and my body is probably going to deteriorate and my skin's going to sag and it's going to wrinkle and my muscles are going to deteriorate. I mean, it's like, like th- this is the way that life is. Paul says, you want to glory in your body? You want to worship the human body? Here's what you're worshiping. Here's what you're looking forward to. It's not good. It's a body of death, okay? Enjoy that. (laughs) He goes on. He says in verse 45, Thus is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
Yeah, Adam was a living being. Yeah, this body, it's fine. But the last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Isn't that exciting? Skip down to verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In this moment, in this time, when you close your eyes for the last time and you open them for the first time fully, everything will be changed from death to fully life. There's this... Great picture that, that, uh, that Jimmy Huang gave um, us on Thursday. And he, he talked about this, this idea of, of marriage. Uh, for, for those of you who are, are single, have you ever wished to be married? Anyone, can we, we can raise our hands. It's cool. You can raise your hand to church. Do it. Come on. Hi. Be bold. Be bold. Be confident. Yeah, it's okay. I want, I want to be married when I was single. It's okay. It's, we're, we're, we're in like company. Now, there are a lot of you who are married. Marriage, marriage is great. It's a beautiful gift from God. That's what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It is a gift and a calling from God. It's something that is good. It's something that represents uh, the relationship of Jesus Christ with the church. This is a good thing. There are a lot of people that, that long to be married, that hope to be married, that want to be married someday. There are very few people that hope to be engaged someday. They want to be married, not engaged. And there are no married people that want to go back to being engaged. Right? Engagement, that's the worst time ever. It's like you're dating, but it's worse. Because, because now the temptations creep in way more heavily. Also, you really begin to you know, get introduced to those in-laws, which mine are great. Tim. Uh, you know? And then you have to plan a wedding. Uh, I mean, you have to make decisions that you did not know could be made in this life. Like, what are all these things that we have to care about? I mean, I have to decide on, and I tie, on a type of tablecloth? What? It's a chair. What does it need to be covered for? You sit on it. Flowers? They're all pretty. God created them, right? I mean, does it really matter? But there are thousands of decisions that have to be made. It all happens in the engagement. No one wants to just savor the engagement. You want to get married. This is what we're talking about. No one who has been made alive in Christ wants to stay in the now and not yet. They want to see the full realization of their life in Christ. No one who's been transferred into the kingdom of God doesn't want the full revelation of the kingdom of God to take place where God's will is done, where there is no more sickness, is no more pain, is no more cancer. We don't long for the engagement, and that's what we're in, people. This is the engagement. 
This is not the time when things will be fully realized, when we will be completely united to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all our desires, who we were created to be united to fully within our souls. Right? Paul's like, why are you savoring the engagement and not looking forward to the marriage? The engagement's fine, but it's not the marriage. This is not it. Romans chapter 8 says all of creation groans in anticipation for the sons and the daughters of God to be revealed for that time when we will be changed, when our imperishable bodies will be made uh, imper- when our perishable bodies will be made imperishable, when our weak bodies will be made strong, when we'll be mature and complete, lacking nothing. All of creation is hoping for this. All of creation is longing for this. Why aren't we? Why is our hope in this world? Why are we trying to soak every ounce of marrow out of this world when what it's about is the next? Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is who gives us the victory. So if, in fact, this is the case, if there is a resurrection from the dead, as Paul claims, and if it is as glorious as Paul talks about it being, then there is only one way to live on this earth. And he says it in verse 58, therefore, Ergo, therefore, my brother, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Don't be swayed by sin. Don't be distracted by the trinkets and the toys of this world. Be immovable, knowing, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Is anyone else here besides me sick and tired of the pains and the difficulties, the frustrations, the sickness, the tragedy, the cancer, the MS, heart disease of this world? Anyone else sick and tired of that? I am. I am sick and tired of these things in this world. And I tell you what, my dad is, is one of my closest friends. He is uh, one of my greatest mentors. What, I mean, totally, truly one of my heroes. And I realize that not everyone has gotten to have a relationship with their dad like I have. And I feel so blessed and grateful for that. A week ago, my dad had a couple heart attacks and he had to go to the hospital. And he had to be uh, brought into surgery and have triple bypass surgery on his heart. And, and I was confronted once again with the realization that his life will not go on forever. That there will be a time that we have to say goodbye. In fact, there will be a time when we may not even get to say goodbye. And I tell you what, this passage of Scripture is so beautiful for me right now. Because as his body deteriorates, it is a reminder that this is not what we hope in. In fact, the relationship that we have right now 
It's just a shadow of what is to come. It's marred by sin and our flesh and our pride and our two opposing wills. But, but when we are changed, when we are fully complete, lacking nothing, when we are like Christ and united to Christ, all of that will be done away with and we will see each other really for the first time. And we will know each other fully for the first time without the weight of sin and death without it being in a mirror dimly, but seeing face to face. And and that excites me. That goodbye is is just a short time. It's just a short time. And then what will come, what will transpire, what will happen in that relationship will be so beautiful that even the pains and the sorrows of the goodbye will melt away in the glorious reunification. I'm so excited about that. Because there isn't hope in this world and in this life. Paul says, yes, this life has an expiration date. Your lifespan is limited. We all are confronted with our mortality. So carpe diem. Seize the day. Make your life extraordinary. But I guarantee he doesn't mean go climb Mount Kilimanjaro. He doesn't mean go run a marathon. He doesn't mean, you know, make a bucket list. He doesn't mean hide and protect your life. Because I tell you what, all these things that you can do, all these things that you can accomplish, all these years that you might be able to make your life longer, he's at best, these things are going to perish. They're going to fade. You're not going to remember them. At best, they won't pass into eternity. Those of you who want your name to be written in the history books, this is not what Paul is saying. Because no matter what you do, no matter what you invent, no matter what um, Nobel Peace Prize you come up with that will last after you die, it will end. And when Jesus returns, there's only one name that will matter, and it's not yours. There is one name that is above every other name that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the name of Jesus and what we have the opportunity to do here on this earth is to do his work and doing his work is not in vain. We get to make his name famous. We get to invite people into his family. We get to build up his church and make his bride beautiful. That's what we get to do. And all of that work that we do in honor of Jesus will last into eternity. It's not in vain. It's not a waste of time. If you forego something on your bucket list to tell someone about Jesus, to point someone to Jesus, to help someone who is poor, to help a widow, to help someone who is destitute or rejected, to point someone to Jesus, then it's so worth it. If it costs you some money, it's worth it. If it costs you some time, it's worth it. Because those things won't last but the things that you do for Jesus. The things that you do in his name, the things that you do to build up his church, they will last into eternity. And this is what we get to do. Because this is who we are in Christ. We have been set free from the worries and the fears and the concerns and the envelopment of this world and this life. And we've been set free. We've been empowered to proclaim the gospel to invite people into the family of God, to say God loves you. He hasn't rejected you. In fact, he's been pursuing after you your whole life. He loves you. He wants you in his family. 
come be a part of this family. It's not perfect. It's messed up, but it's okay. We're all messed up together. You think you're messed up, man? Join us. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. It's all about the gospel, folks. It's the beginning, it's the middle, it's the end. And what Jesus did on the cross to justify you, what Jesus is doing now through the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify you, what Jesus will do at the end when he returns and redeems and restores all things, it's so worth it. So we fix our eyes on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and we remain steadfast and immovable, unshaken from sin, undistracted by, by the things of this world. And we engage in the work of the Lord because it is not in vain. It is the greatest investment you can ever do. We get to be a part of the most epic story ever. Carrying out the work of God. Sharing the love of Jesus in a tangible way as the hands and feet of Jesus. Inviting people into his family. And using the gift that he has given us, the spiritual gift he has given us to build up the church. This is what it's all about, folks. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that while we were yet sinners, you came and you died to save us, to reunite us with yourself. Thank you that you haven't just left us here, that you are coming back to get us. And thank you that in that moment, all sickness and pain will cease. All sin will cease. And, and, our, and our bodies will be made new. Our lives will be made new. We will be mature and complete, lacking nothing. We will be reunited with those who have gone before us. And, and, and more importantly, we will be united with you fully. Thank you. I pray that you would fix our eyes and our minds on these things so that we might remain steadfast and immovable in you and that we might be always abounding in your work for your glory, to expand your borders, to invite people into your family so they might experience the same love and freedom that we've experienced in you. God, thank you. Help us. We need you, God, because this world is so distracting. It's so easy to fall into the temptations of sin. God, help us be immovable, unshakable, always abounding in your work. We need your help. And so we cry out to you in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.